1: My conversation with Bloomberg News reporter Leah Nyland started out kind of nerdy. I actually want to start this episode in 2017 with a note in the Yale Law Journal. Yeah. The the writer, then a student at Yale Law, made a novel argument about antitrust law. And I am fairly certain that you know what I'm talking about. I do indeed she knows because the woman who wrote that article, or note as they call it in the Yale law world, is now the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Kahn, the youngest ever in commission history.
0: So Lena Kahn wrote what, you know, is sort of like a rock star academic article and like that does sound extremely nerdy, I know, but for antitrust law, this was like a viral article, which, you know, things don't really go viral in the antitrust world. But she wrote this article that argued that uh, the way that the U.S. had been applying antitrust law to online companies, particularly big online players like Amazon.com, was completely wrong. For years, the thinking in antitrust was that the most important thing was the price that consumers paid. Low was good. High was bad. End of story. But one of the things she argued is that um, that allows companies that want to engage in what's known as predatory pricing, i.e., selling products for below the cost that it um costs to make them, that lets them do that sort of flagrantly. And because mm. of the internet, that makes it super, it's super easy to sell things for free. And you know, you're you're not actually charging a monetary price, but sometimes you are. Sort of charging a price in another way by like collecting a lot of data about a person or, you know, requiring the t- them to turn over personal information. And this was like a revelation for a lot of people. Nobody had ever thought about it that way. And so it was, it was just very, uh, <laughs> it was like a tidal wave went off in the antitrust world. Five years later,
1: that tidal wave has come to Washington. Today on the show, why that makes Silicon Valley pretty nervous. Congress may not be reining in big tech, but Biden's agencies are hard at work. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. If you know anything about the history of antitrust in this country, I'm willing to bet it came from history class, when you learned about Theodore Roosevelt. The present conditions of business cannot be accepted as satisfactory. There are too many who do not prosper enough. And of the few who prosper greatly, there are certainly some whose prosperity does not mean well for the country. That's Roosevelt in 1912. He cultivated a reputation as a trust buster, someone who broke up the big companies that controlled railroads, sugar, and oil, and were enriching only a few people. If you want to be more accurate, most of the credit for trust busting should go to the Supreme Court. But this era, Roosevelt's and later William Howard Taft's, is the first big inflection point for U.S. antitrust. A later one, the start of the modern era, came with Robert Bork. Yes, that Robert Bork, President Reagan's failed Supreme Court nominee.
0: So Bork wrote this book that said, you know, antitrust has never really had a defining principle aside from, you know, anti corporate power. And really the way that antitrust should be applied is thinking about the consumer. And he developed something that has come to be known as like the consumer welfare standard. And the hallmark of the consumer welfare standard is that you think about any business conduct or any Uh, merger in terms of how it will impact the ultimate consumer. Is this merger going to result in lower prices for consumers? If so, it's good. Is it going to result in higher prices for consumers? If so, it's bad. This standard dominated the world of antitrust,
1: basically from its publication in 1978 to fairly recently. That's when,
0: Leah says, it began to be viewed as a little too narrow. But that uh, people have come to sort of think of has some drawbacks to it because it sort of tends to reduce everything to price, for one. And there are often like other factors that you might take into account. Like if you're looking at two different things that you're going to buy, price is definitely a factor. But if you happen to know that one is like higher quality, maybe you're willing to pay a little bit more for that for that um, product, knowing that it, it might last longer or something like that. There's been some concern that this consumer welfare standard that was really associated with Bork and the Chicago School has led uh, antitrust today to sort of ignore important aspects like innovation and quality.
1: Perhaps surprisingly, the presidencies of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama were not that dissimilar in terms of antitrust. Yeah, you had the government's big case against Microsoft, but by and large, it was a
0: business and merger-friendly era. Just throughout that entire period, there was a lot of consolidation. You know, we went from having perhaps a half dozen different cell phone carriers. to Today, there's only three that you can really use for phone service. You know, we had a lot more supermarket brands. We had tons and tons more um, food brands. You know, today, there's only a, a few huge conglomerates that sell a lot of food products. Um, Amy Klobuchar, who's one of the leading senators on this, likes to talk about how we have had concentration in everything from cat food to caskets. <laughs> for most products, there are maybe two or three companies that you can go to. And that didn't used to be the case. The consumer welfare standard seems to make a lot of sense for a whole
1: bunch of different agencies. But the reason I'm talking to you today is in a lot of ways about tech. And it feels like that's the place where it starts to have some obvious holes. And I wonder if you think that maybe antitrust regulators weren't ready for tech, weren't thinking about how big tech
0: was going to change the way people live their lives. I think that's definitely true. I mean, for years, you heard people saying, you know, tech is great for consumers because it's free. And it's true, you know, like there are all of these products online that are don't cost you any money. But I I think that we have sort of as we've sort of grappled now with the idea that these these products weren't re- ever really free. You were just giving something other than money. You were giving up some information about yourself, you were giving up a little bit of privacy that the company was going to going to take this information and aggregate it to better sell you ads or something along those lines. You know, and that's where the consumer welfare standard really did break down because it never it had never really contemplated uh, a problem with a free product before and regulators didn't really think about that because yeah it's good to have a free product but it's not good to have a free product if that's the only option you know you always do want there to be a choice for consumers yeah you can take the free one but here's this other one that gives you a little bit more privacy and uh for a little bit of money. But the problem was all of these free products began to dominate their industry so quickly that they sort of ended up putting out all of these other companies out of business.
1: It's also worth noting that in the earlier part of the 2000s, big tech simply didn't get the scrutiny that it does now. Even in 2013, after a pretty lengthy investigation, the Obama administration declined to sue
0: Google. So there had been some concerns that Google was Preferencing its own products and search results. And what that means is, like, when you would go and search for something like tacos, you know, Google is going to put uh, the companies that have paid it ads for tacos at the top, maybe the ones who um, have paid it the most money for ads on its little map above any of the uh, organic search results. So maybe there's actually like a really great taco place down the street from you, but that. Company is going to end up being a lot lower in the search results because of these other ones that Google is preferencing. So the FTC like looked at this for 18 months and then they voted um, five to zero to close the investigation. And they found that there was nothing wrong with this. They said hmm. Google's search results on balance are great for consumers. Um, and a lot of people who had complained about this were like really defeated by this. This moment when the FTC was essentially saying, you know, everything's fine here, move along, because it had literally put a lot of companies who are offering competing products, sometimes better products, out of business just because of the volume of searches that happens on Google. Google is for a lot of companies the gateway to how they get traffic, um, and uh, the FTC just sort of decided to close the probe and move on.
1: But internally some people within the FTC did recognize the problems with Google search, just not the commissioners.
0: Um, It didn't come out until later that actually the FTC staff had recommended suing Google on part of it. And uh, the commissioners sort of ignored that recommendation and opted to close the case. Um, And in particular, like, What was really interesting about it is that the FTC really didn't understand that people were moving to mobile phones. Like, this was the time when, like, mobile phones were still sort of new. A lot of people with
1: white-collar jobs still had Blackberries, not iPhones, and others hadn't switched
0: to smartphones. And so the FTC just, like, didn't understand that people weren't always going to be searching things on their desktop. They were going to start doing on mobile phones. And Google, interestingly, had uh, these contracts with um, Apple and a lot of the browsers um, to uh, ensure that it was the default search engine on phones and mobile browsers. Um, And at the time, the FTC saw this and said, you know, we think that's a problem, you know, that uh, locks up this key gateway that another search engine might need. Um, And the FTC didn't do anything about it. Now uh fast forward to 2020 and that is the thing that the justice department ends up suing google over so like this thing that actually they knew about in 2013 doesn't end up nothing ends up happening about it until 2020 did you expect the biden administration
1: to come out with the sort of repudiation of the obama approach when they came into office
0: not really i mean biden said nothing really about antitrust in his um you know, presidential campaign. I mean, that's that's not usually that weird. Like, people don't usually have like an antitrust. It's not like policy. a sexy stump speech. Yeah, like people have healthcare policies. They don't always have like antitrust. But if you remember, there were actually two candidates who made a lot of their um, campaign platform about antitrust. Elizabeth Warren, had, like one of her main stump speeches, was that we needed to break up the big companies.
1: It has been far too long that the monopolies have been making the campaign contributions, have been funding the super PACs, have been out there making sure that their influence is heard and felt in every single decision that gets made in Washington.
0: Amy Klobuchar, who was another Democratic nominee at the forefront for a while, also made antitrust a core plank of her um, platform. When we're in a situation where 78% of the seed for our farmers is controlled by two companies and our railroads now for class one are down to four, the same number as on the monopoly board, Um, I think we are now entering what is essentially a new gilded age and we need to take on the power of these monopolies. So for like Biden to sort of say nothing was a little bit strange. And then like he comes into office and there is immediately this drumbeat by the progressives um, and the anti-monopolists to sort of go with their approach to antitrust over sort of what we would call like maybe the more business friendly Obama approach. And so he sort of shocked everyone when one of the first people he announced on tech policy was Tim Wu, who is... um, a good friend of Lena Kahn's at Columbia University. He's the guy who uh, coined the term net neutrality and has also been like a very progressive um, figure on antitrust.
1: Part of the reason that Biden's antitrust team is worth examining is that Congress has failed to make any real progress on legislation aimed at big tech. What would you say are the hallmarks of Lena Kahn's approach so far?
0: There's a couple things that um Lena Khan has wanted to do differently. One, she's very fond of sort of going back to the actual law as it was written and suggesting that they sort of follow it as written, which actually, you know, if you if you know anything about the Supreme Court, that's almost like an originalist interpretation. But Lena Khan has said, you know, these laws are on the books, if they're still in the books, we should enforce them and maybe we should enforce them exactly as written. And because these laws, a lot of the antitrust laws were written really broadly, that could give the FTC um, a lot of authority to challenge things. The FTC's main law says that it can challenge, uh, quote, unfair methods of competition and deceptive business practices. I mean, those are pretty broad, uh, authorities, you could challenge a lot of things under that. So she's been very fond of saying, you know, that's what the law says. That's what we should do. Um, another thing that she has proposed is, um, uh, actually creating some rules. So the FTC has primarily been a, like a law enforcement agency. It brings hmm. cases against companies and she has suggested, you know, we do have the authority within our statute to write some rules, So why don't we actually try and uh, write some rules that define what we mean by an unfair method of competition? We could say, you can't do this. That's an unfair method of competition. Don't do that. Um, Instead of just sort of like leaving it up to a case by case basis. How would that work in practice? Um, It's pretty interesting. You know, they, they make this argument that bright line rules are actually really good for everyone because then they know exactly where the line is. You know, there are some things that are pretty obvious, right? Like you shouldn't Pretend to be the US government if you're not. You shouldn't pretend to be a like IBM if you're not really IBM. So they've started like a rulemaking that says you should not pretend to be somebody you're not. Which I mean, that probably seems really obvious, but it had never before been a rule.
1: They should hang out on Twitter a bit. (laughs) She's also done something that I find kind of interesting, which is like trying to get these different parts of the agency to talk to each other. Which also (laughs) seems really funny. On its face, fairly simple. And yet, I gather from your reporting and others that, like, that wasn't happening.
0: Yeah. So, the FTC is sort of an interesting place. Um, it's primarily divided into three different bureaus, they call them. One is focused on competition, one is focused on consumer protection, and one is focused on econ- um, economics. And those three bureaus almost never spoke to one another, which if you think about it, is sort of absurd. Like you have some of the foremost experts in the world on consumer privacy and how online businesses are impacting consumer privacy. And they were not talking to the people down the hall who were doing investigations into how business conduct or mergers um, in the online space were impacting consumers. And I mean, this was something you really saw in the Google case from 2013 was, Their colleagues, the folks in the consumer protection division, really did understand um, online advertising. They really did understand the importance of the move to mobile in a way that their colleagues in the competition bureau had no idea. And so some of the things that the folks in the competition bureau just like asserted as true about Google and the future of the Internet were completely contradicted by the FTC's own Reports on online privacy and the online uh, advertising industry. And uh, so, one of the things uh, Lena Khan did immediately upon coming in is saying, We're breaking down these silos. Like, they make no sense. Um, We are like dividing ourselves unnecessarily. We should really start, you know, using our own expertise on these issues uh, to aid ourselves.
1: When Lena Khan first took over, some people in Silicon Valley were worried or were trash-talking her. And Leah says there was good reason for them to be concerned, especially when it comes to things like the potential deal between Microsoft and Activision.
0: I mean, that's a really interesting one. Microsoft is, um, you know, obviously the maker of Xbox. Um, It is also the number three company in the world, interestingly, ahead of Google. And it is proposing to buy Activision, which is one of the largest um, game publishers. They make Call of Duty and some of the other most popular games on game consoles. Um, And they need FTC approval for this deal. And they may not get it. I mean, Lena Kahn and her other commissioners have said one of the things that they are most concerned about is um, when uh, technologies are changing
1: especially as we see the advent of new technologies, of potentially alternative platforms. I think whenever you see um, potential moments of transition, that's when enforcers need to be especially vigilant because that's when incumbents often panic and realize that to stay relevant, to stay dominant, you know, they may have to engage in tactics that ultimately end up being illegal.
0: Um, the interesting thing about gaming is more and more of it is moving to the cloud. Um, In the future, you might not need to buy an Xbox or a PlayStation or a Nintendo. You would just use your phone or tablet to access one in the cloud. Um, And right now, Microsoft is sort of a leader in that space. And there's a lot of concern that if they acquire Activision, that they will have like a library of games that is unbeatable, Hmm. um, that nobody else would really be able to compete. The FTC has also challenged um, Meta over this acquisition of Within, which is the um, maker of a virtual reality fitness app. Meta is the maker of Oculus, the most used virtual reality uh, headset. And Within makes this a uh, very popular fitness app called Supernatural. Um, and the FTC sued over this acquisition because they argued that this was really Meta trying to buy up a, a potential competitor and sort of dominate in the virtual reality space. Because, um, you know, right now, virtual reality is pretty popular among uh, young men. But the fitness industry could bring it to a lot more people, particularly hmm. older folks and particularly women. And so, like, by by sort of acquiring the most popular fitness app, like, Facebook is sort of insisting that, um, you know, its headset is going to have the best library of games and that nobody else could possibly, like, uh, challenge it. Um, and the FTC is, is filed a case against this. It's actually going to trial um, in December, and we should have a decision uh, by the end of the year.
1: I think it can be hard when you're talking about something like antitrust to understand if you are not a reporter, not a lawyer, like what the implications are for how you and I live our lives. What do you think regular people should take from what you've seen at the agency so far?
0: Yeah. I mean, I like to tell people any trust is not really that complicated. It's just the rules for business about how to play fair. Um, And its goal is to make sure that consumers get the best offering that they can. So, I mean, yeah, it gets complicated with a lot of economics and people throw around fancy terms, but at base, it's just about fairness. Um, fairness in business and fairness in competition. And I think that's really what Lena Khan and the FTC right now have been trying to bring it back to. Um, they've been doing these series of workshops in which they try and get the average American or like the average business person to come in and talk to them about how consolidation or mergers in their industry have impacted them on a, a business or a personal level. They've been talking to a lot of farmers. They've been talking to a lot of small business owners um, to sort of get more feedback about the actual everyday impact of, of these sorts of business conduct and mergers.
1: When we come back, Biden's team may be aggressive on antitrust, but the courts are a different story. The flip side of the antitrust coin, if the FTC is on one side, is the Department of Justice on the other. What have they been doing in the Biden administration so far?
0: Yeah. So the Justice Department has um, the Antitrust Division and they also enforce the Antitrust laws. Um, the FTC and the DOJ Antitrust Division are sort of like sister agencies. Um, and the Antitrust Division right now is headed by a man named Jonathan Cantor. He's actually, uh, you know, pretty close to Lena Khan and Tim Wu, who is the uh, head of competition at the White House. And um, At the beginning of the Biden administration, these progressive activists actually made these little mugs um, that are now sort of collector's items. And they said, woo and con and Cantor. Um, And then they (laughs) were like, so (laughs) they were so thrilled when like uh, President Biden appointed all of them. Um, And Jonathan Cantor is a very interesting figure because he is a longtime antitrust lawyer. he's been a huge skeptic of the tech giants, in particular Google. So he has represented a lot of the companies, um, the smaller tech companies who've really had problems because of Google, because of Apple, because of Amazon. Um, And he sort of created almost like a little niche in representing people who um, are successful companies, but have had problems with um, the tech giants. Um, And so he started at the antitrust division about a year ago. He was um, installed in November of 2021. And since getting there, he's really um, urged them to completely rethink the approach to antitrust. Um, In the past year and a half, they have sued uh, over 10 mergers, which is actually (laughs) an unheard of number. (laughs) I mean for most of the time I've covered antitrust, which is 12 years, you would get like one of these challenges a year. And so to get 10 of them over the course of 18 months is pretty crazy. Um, and in the majority of them, they've won. People have either, you know, as soon as they gotten sued, abandoned their deal, or sometimes they've made them go to go to trial. But um, they won a major one uh, between Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. Those are two of the largest book publishers in the U.S. Um, They have lost three cases so far, but three out of 10 isn't all that bad, and they're still appealing in some of those. So they could come out winning at the end. Um, And uh, the antitrust division has also focused a lot on monopolization.
1: Explain that to, to people who don't kind of understand why focusing on monopolization is important.
0: Yeah. So monopolization is when a um, company sort of becomes the dominant player in, a, in industry, usually if they have like a 60% market share or more. And then they start imposing um, conditions on that make it harder for other companies to compete. So the Justice Department sued over Google. This was during the Trump administration. But um, under Cantor, they've also begun a number of other um, investigations. They have one into Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Which will make Taylor Swift fans very happy. <laughs> yes, it's been so interesting to watch all the Swifties become anti-monopolous. <laughs> um, and yeah, so there's been, you know, like he, they have another investigation into Google. They have an investigation into Apple over the App Store. So there's just been like a really revitalizing this area, which hadn't seen very much um, action in the past, you know, two decades. Of course, anything that
1: the FTC or the DOJ pursues, certainly from a, from a progressive viewpoint, seems like it runs into a wall when or can run into a wall when it comes to the court system. I wonder how that figures into this equation.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, as as I mentioned when we were talking about Robert Bork, he was a he was a judge. Um and Many people know his his failed trip to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And so his thinking about um, antitrust has been very um, influential on the judiciary. And so the judiciary has, by and large, taken a very conservative approach to antitrust. You know, the um, FTC and DOJ aren't known for being particularly progressive until recently. They, you know, are generally suing on some of what they consider to be the most obvious cases, whether these are Republicans or Democrats. But they haven't necessarily been that successful in the courts. Only, you know, like maybe about 50% of the time would they actually win. Um, And that has sort of um, had a major impact on antitrust law um, because, you know, all of these cases have to go through the courts. Um, Sometimes even if you win at the trial court level, you go through this entire antitrust trial, it gets overturned on appeal. This is something that happened to the antitrust division when it challenged American Express um, they, uh, this case was filed in the Obama era, continued under Trump. Uh, they won a trial, um, arguing that, uh, American Express's fees, um, end up causing, you know, higher prices for everyone. Um, and then it got overturned by the appeals court and the Supreme Court. So, you know, the, The conservativeness of the judiciary has definitely hampered um, the ability of antitrust enforcers to really go after um, a lot of corporate conduct and mergers. And it sounds like you're saying that's not
1: just the Trump appointee judges. That's sort of a larger philosophical view
0: that maybe isn't as dependent on party. Yeah, I'm you know, oftentimes when a case is assigned, you you do tend to look at whether it's a um a republican or a democratic appointed judge, but it doesn't really tend to matter. You know, one of the judges who is right now overseeing the FTC's case against Meta, the very first thing he did was throughout the case. Hmm. Um he said that they hadn't done a good enough job arguing that Facebook was a monopoly. <laughs> um which When you hear that as a like regular person, you're like, excuse me, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) You don't think that it's like obvious that Facebook is a monopoly. But yeah, he made them go back and try again. He said, I want you to offer me more proof that Facebook is a monopoly. So they came back with some more and he said, okay, fine, I'll let it move forward. But, you know, that this was a a judge appointed by Obama. And it's not, you know, out of the norm. This sort of thing happens quite frequently. It's not
1: lost on me that Europe has been pursuing multiple antitrust cases and laws and kind of moving ahead with a a much faster pace, I think you could arguably say, than the U.S. Do you think the United States is going to catch up or is there just going to be this kind of big bifurcation in in these two massive markets?
0: That's a really interesting question. As you mentioned, you know, the EU has brought a lot of cases against the tech giants. They brought three different cases against Google, fined them $10 billion. They brought cases against Apple. They have a case against Amazon. They have various cases against Facebook. Um, But one thing that they have sort of realized over in Europe is bringing these cases on a case-by-case basis has not been that effective because the minute you start talking about how do you fix this behavior... um, it's it's very complicated. So uh, earlier this year, they passed this new regulation called the Digital Markets Act. And it outlaws some behavior by companies if they are considered uh, a digital gatekeeper. So there are going to be things that um, companies like Google, companies like Amazon, companies like Facebook can no longer do in Europe. One of those things is this self-preferencing that we talked about. Google... And Amazon and Apple are no longer going to be allowed to automatically put their own products at the top of a search just because they're their products. Um, And we've really been waiting to see whether this is something that the companies are going to do just in Europe or whether they're going to do this on a global basis.
1: I had a conversation with Margretta Vesteyer, who is the sort of EU's antitrust cop, and she related this sort of funny anecdote like she tweeted out a picture of herself and jonathan Cantor and lena khan all kind of smiling and and arms around each other and it was like oh are you trying to are you trying to telegraph something like are you trying to say that you're all on the same page and if you could you would all
0: sing from the same hymnal I mean, that was one interesting thing. The Justice Department did come out in favor of the antitrust legislation that's pending in Congress on behalf of the Obama administration. And that was, you know, among the things that they pointed out. You know, this is already gonna happen in Europe. Um, we might as well get with the program.
1: <laughs> we started our conversation talking about Lena Khan's Yale law review piece. And it does make me wonder, like <sighs> What is the difference in practice, right, from being like an idealistic law student who had this viral article to the head of an agency who has to do a lot of politicking and a lot of cat herding? What does that mean in, in practice? Like, do do you think she ever sits there and is like, oh, I had this great idea and it just fell short?
0: <laughs> I, I would love to actually hear her talk about this one day because like, yeah, like being an academic it's a very, you know, cerebral exercise. You know, you're thinking about the ways in which you want to propose that things change. But being the FTC chair, like, you have that power. But, like, it's much harder to do in practice than it is just to think about. Um, and I think they've, they've sort of seen that a little bit. You know, one thing that a couple of the Republicans on the commission love to point out is, like, the number of cases that they filed under Lena Kahn is a lot lower than the number of cases than the Trump administration um, filed. And I think part of that might be that, you know, Lena Khan was really thrown into this position as a manager of a pretty large agency. I mean, they have something like 1,200 employees. And the FTC chair is really like part, you know, part visionary, part manager. Um, and sort of, you know, combining both of those skills um, is probably like a little difficult.
1: Leah Nyland, thank you so much for talking
0: with me. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you for having me.
1: Leah Nylan is an antitrust reporter at Bloomberg News. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of this show, I have a little request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. You can head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You get all your Slate podcasts ad-free, and it makes a lovely holiday gift. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BTW, Void. prohibited by law.
1: See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump... Judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.